Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Russian troops have officially crossed the border into Ukraine late Monday night under the pretense of protecting two breakaway regions of the country. Over the last eight years, more than 14,000 people have died there in separatist fighting. In recent weeks, tensions have grown. Civilian buildings in these regions are being hit with shelling, including a kindergarten last week. Air raid sirens have been blaring, residents have been told to leave, and now Putin's so-called peacekeeping troops are on the ground. And so Ukraine's 44 million people are waiting to see if their country will be plunged into war and how its Western allies will help. This isn't a diplomatic process anymore. This is a, uh, it's a hard power moment. The Globe senior international correspondent, Mark McKinnon, is back on the show today. He joins us from Ukraine's capital city, Kyiv. This is The Decibel. Mark, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you for having me. So we're having a conversation around noon on Tuesday, and things are, of course, happening very quickly here. At this point, Russian troops have moved into the eastern part of Ukraine. Exactly where are these troops now, and how many people are we talking about? We don't know how many Russian soldiers we're talking about. All we have to go on so far is our, our online videos we see on social media, etc., which show columns of uh, Russian troop trucks and Russian ar- armored personnel carriers entering these areas of Donetsk and Luhansk in southeastern Ukraine. You know, about an hour before this conversation, the Russian parliament gave Vladimir Putin formal permission to send troops into the Donbass region, Donetsk and Luhansk. Actually, it had happened about 20 hours before he bothered asking his parliament, which tells you a little bit about uh, how, how the Russian political system works. Hmm. Okay. I, I, don't, I don't mean for this to sound like a simple question, but is this the war that we've been kind of talking about for the last few months now then? It might be um, the extent of it. It's hard to say how, where this goes from here, but I think this is probably the first step because if you listen to Mr. Putin's speech last night, not only did he announce that he was formally recognizing the independence of these so-called People's Republics of Donetsk and Luhansk, he also gave a warning to the Ukrainian side saying, you know, cease hostilities now or the responsibility for the bloodbath that could follow will be yours. The Ukrainian side, and I've been to the front line twice in recent days, says they aren't firing right now. In fact, they're taking fire and, and doing their best not to reply unless it's actually about saving lives in that exact spot. Uh, and again, from my visits to the front line, the, the artillery that I could hear sounded very much like it was coming from beyond the separatist lines. The Ukrainians, can't, they can't stop something they're not doing. And so what this looks a lot like is something that President Biden and the United States and others have been warning for some time, that we could see something about what's called a false flag operation, something that is a provocation that's pre-prepared to justify this larger war that many people fear is about to begin. Hmm, Okay. And I guess we should mention, so in these regions, these are not regions that are completely controlled by pro-Russia separatists, right? Can we just get some, I guess, context on what 
portion of these areas that we're talking about is controlled by who? Yeah, what's collectively called the Donbass, the Russian word is oblasts, like a province of Donetsk and Luhansk. Back in 2014, after the pro-Western revolution in Kiev and the Russian annexation of Crimea, these rebels, which were very clearly supported by the Russian military. I was there and you could see that some of these guys were rebels and others were had really nicely shined boots and, and looked like they were regular combat troops. They popped up in, in, in southeastern Ukraine and declared the independence of Donetsk and Luhansk. There was some quite serious fighting that followed. And, and by the time the, the front line stabilized, the separatists and with their helpers in Moscow controlled about a, a third of these two provinces, including the capitals of both. This is interesting or, or important because now there's two-thirds of, of these provinces are not controlled by the rebels, and we don't know at this moment exactly what Mr. Putin has recognized. Has he recognized the republics within the borders of what they currently control, or has he, re- has he recognized these republics on the borders they claim, which are the provincial borders? We're in very uncharted waters right now. I think really only Putin knows what comes next. And what we've heard from Putin is he gave a 40-minute speech on Monday. It aired on all the Russian TV channels, and a lot of people were watching. I know you yourself were watching, Mark. What did Putin reveal in that speech, I guess, about what his in- intentions are are here? I, I think it was a, a deeply alarming speech for, for Ukrainians around the world, and especially those who live here. And I spoke to Kiev Mayor Vitaly Klitschko today, and he called it a declaration of war. And what bothered him most, what bothered a lot of Ukrainians and what Mr. Putin has frankly said or written before, is that he effectively questioned the state of Ukraine, whether there is or should be a state of Ukraine, whether Ukrainians and Russians are separate people or whether they've been torn apart by history. He basically said that Ukraine was created by Vladimir Lenin, by the Soviet uh, Union, and that you know, this was a great mistake that had been made to separate people who had lived together under the Russian Empire. So before that speech, I thought his intention was to force a change of government in Ukraine. That sounded more like he wants Ukraine and Russia to be one country again, which uh, is even more alarming, obviously. His argument with the West is very personal and angry. And that speech last night was very personal, angry and, and deeply worrying for anybody who shares a border with Putin's Russia. Europe and and the U.S. have been trying to kind of use diplomacy to ease the tensions here. Where do the diplomatic efforts stand right now, Mark, now that we do have Russian troops moving into these regions and Putin making these kinds of declarations? I don't mean to be glib, but Western diplomacy here has effectively failed. It's it's done. There's a series of sanctions that they can use. The German government uh, effectively put a halt or, or a stop on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is a very important economic project for Russia and one that would have given Russia the ability to transport gas to Europe without its current network of pipelines, which transit Ukraine. There's a lot of hashtag support for Ukraine, um, some military support. Unfortunately, I I believe in the days ahead, we're going to see these weapons uh, needed. But there's no longer an effort that's serious to convince Mr. Putin to stop. The only thing he made clear, he gave a speech just a few minutes ago, demilitarizing Ukraine was sort of the off-ramp he could see. You know, even if Western governments convinced uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to accept that, he would immediately face internal unrest for capitulating to the Russians. I mean, this is, you know, the, the mood in Ukraine, the public opinion in Ukraine would not accept the kind of compromises that Mr. Putin is, uh, you know, pretending to put on the table. This isn't a diplomatic process anymore. This is a, uh, it's a hard power moment. 
Okay. At the same time as Russia's had many sanctions already put on it in the last few years because of its actions, it's actually been forging ties with China in a way to get some more connections there. I guess I wondered, will that limit the effectiveness of the proposed sanctions from Europe, Canada and the U.S. if Russia has this ally in China? There are some still some significant steps that, that the West can take and I, I believe will take soon. In addition to targeting, you know, other Russian banks and other individuals connected to Mr. Putin, maybe Mr. Putin himself, that, would, that seems an obvious step at this point. They can disconnect uh, Russia from the global SWIFT network, which, you know, prevents banking transfers. For instance, you know, I, when I pay a translator for work in Russia, I will send it via the SWIFT network. And so that's going to make that a lot more complicated, make Russia that much more cut off. And as you mentioned, these sanctions are from the European Union, the United States, Canada, but not from Asia, not from China in particular, not from the developing world. So their economy is actually in fairly decent shape as we move towards this conflict. Are they a little bit more self-sufficient then, in a way? Absolutely. Nowadays, when you know, in Russia, it is a it's a country that builds things again. You know, you can talk about the quality of that. And when I go to Russia, I pack a lot of Western cheeses because the uh, you know Russian-made Parmesan and, and Russian-made brie are not what you would taste in the West. And, and that you know, people who remember what that's supposed to taste like know that. I'll show up with like a cooler bag full of cheese on my back for friends there. But it's, um, you know, but they are making those cheeses. And so after a while, you start to forget what the other Parmesan or the other brie used to taste like, and that's just what you have on your sandwich or on your pasta. So, okay, so this is an interesting perspective on the, the sanctions then. So I, I want to ask about the people in Russia and what we know about general sentiments towards the operation here and what Putin is doing. From what you've seen, Mark, and the people you've talked to, how much support within Russia, with the Russian population, is there for, for these kind of moves that are happening? So, you know, the, my Russian friends and colleagues that I'm in contact with, I mean, they're alarmed. But if you look at more broadly at public opinion, you say, you know, you ask Russians, this has been carried by the Levada Center, which is about the only independent polling center in Russia. Do you want war with Ukraine? Most Russians say immediately, like, overwhelmingly no. Who do you blame for the conflict in Ukraine? It's the United States, overwhelmingly. So they don't want this war, but they believe it's the West that has pushed this war. Last time we spoke, Mark, about a month ago now, you talked about how in Kyiv there wasn't much of a palpable sense of fear or anxiety about a possible conflict there. What is the mood like there today? I know a lot of uh, Ukrainians who are spending their weekends uh, training with the Territorial Defense Forces, which are the reserves. I know a lot of Ukrainians who have what they call go bags packed and a plan of where they'll go to if war comes to their neighborhood. There's definitely more realism or sort of an acceptance that this war is a lot closer now than it was a month ago. We have not yet seen the panic that I think Western uh, television networks are, are looking for. I saw on Monday you tweeted, a, I think, an exchange you had with a server at a restaurant. Can you just tell us what she said? Yeah, that was, the, and there are more and more moments like this. And, I, and you know, there's been a couple in just the last few days that really, really struck me as, as abnormal for everything that I just said about people not panicking. I was just getting up from this restaurant that the waitresses all know me and, and, and the restaurant across the street here. And uh, I was getting up and this waitress grabbed my arm and she said, are you leaving? And I said, well, yeah, I'm going back to my hotel. <laughs> and she goes, no, are you leaving Ukraine? And I said, no, 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 I'm not. Uh, she's like, well, why not? You know, aren't, aren't all the Westerners leaving? And I said, you know, the, the embassy has said that you should go, but, you know, I'm a journalist and so far we're staying here. And she goes, you know, because I'm thinking about leaving and, and my husband really wants to leave, but we've got these two cats and, and we just can't leave them. 
And uh, it was just such a, a real moment that I think almost anybody can understand. It's like, it sounds like such an easy thing to do. Like, oh, the war is coming towards your city. Why don't you leave? And there's a lot of, how foolish are these people? Get out of there. But it, imagine, you've got a job, you've got a home, you've got pets, you've got kids. I had a conversation the other day with someone I've known for 20 years here, and he was just talking about, you know, trying to leave his kids in school till the March break, and then maybe they'll leave. You know, like that kind of math. You know, like leave the kids in school, give them as much normalcy as possible for as long as possible. And the other day, you know, I was just sitting in my hotel room typing and the cleaning staff sort of asked if they could come in and clean. It was very strange. Usually they wait till you leave. And then for the next half hour, just questions about, so I think I might have to leave. Like, where? what's life like in Poland? What's life like in Germany? And, and so people are starting to think about what happens next. Yeah. Mark, as you, as you mentioned, you've had a few trips to the front lines of this conflict in, in the last little while as well. From what you've seen... How prepared is Ukraine and Ukrainians to fight here? Um, there's the rhetorical answer, which the Ukrainians give. Uh, they say, you know, we're going to fight for this land. We've been fighting for it for the last eight years. What I think um, military analysts who look at the satellite imagery are worried about is that what Russia might have in mind if it decides to escalate beyond... Right now we're still talking about sort of fighting in the Donbass, but if this becomes a bigger conflict and, and Mr. Putin is sort of laying down the reasons why he might do that, it would be more like the shock and awe campaign we saw in Iraq 2003. You know, Ukraine cannot compete with the Russian Air Force. This wouldn't be about how battle-hardened an army is. You can't fight something you can't see if it just is hitting you, right? And that's... I think, you know, why when you see these doomsday predictions from, from Mr. Biden uh, in Washington talking about, you know, 72 hours and Kiev will be surrounded, that's what he's looking at. He's, he's not looking at this as, you know, the spirit of Ukraine and whether or not they're willing to fight. He's looking at the kind of material that Russia has positioned around this country and the reality that Ukraine can't compete with that. And how much help has Ukraine had from its Western allies, though? Is there significant support that Ukraine has uh, received from its allies? They've received some equipment they've never had before, anti-tank missiles, anti-aircraft missiles. You know, the sanctions are, are helpful. The diplomatic support is helpful. But I think on the overall, and, you know, Western embassies have already left Kiev by and large. You know, Western airlines have stopped landing here. Ukrainians feel rather deserted. They twice, you could say three times, if you include the end of the Soviet Union, three times took to the streets to pull away from Moscow and to try and point the country west. They bet on the west. The west put a lot of money into this country, into building things like independent media and, and objective judiciary. And all that was fantastic. But right now, when the chips are really, really down, NATO has drawn a red line around the western border of Ukraine, said, you know, we're not, this is where we'll defend. It's on the other side of this country that's being threatened by Mr. Putin. And, you know, Ukraine never was promised anything more than that. They've been caught in mid-process. They thought they were going towards the west. They thought they were going to, you know, have this other future. And even if we don't have war, I, I don't think Ukraine's going to get that European NATO future it thought it was on track for. Hmm. So just lastly here then, Mark, after all these things that we've talked about now, can this situation, can it be de-escalated? I feel like we've missed, we've gone past the point of de-escalation. I, I, you know, because any, any de-escalation right now would involve Mr. Putin backing down and I don't see him backing down. I don't see the West giving him what he wants. And if Mr. Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, suddenly comes up with some concession, 
some of Ukrainians would accept that and say, oh, gosh, you know, if it's the price of avoiding war, fantastic. But he would also, it would be the end of his political career in this country. So I think we're, we're in a situation where the off-ramps have all been ignored by everybody. And the language from the White House half an hour ago was, this is a, an invasion of Ukraine. And that's not incorrect. The language of the mayor of Kiev is, we're now at war. That's not incorrect. I'm still hopeful that we don't see this kind of shock and awe campaign I was talking about. We don't see a massive military campaign that somehow this ends another way. But no, Mr. Putin so far has spent a lot of capital. He's already getting sanctions on him, on his country. And he has yet to get anything he didn't already have in terms of control of the Donetsk and Luhansk Republic. So right now, it's all costs for him, including the costs domestically. And he hasn't had the gain yet. I don't think he goes home happy with securing Russian influence over two parts of Ukraine that he already controlled. Okay, Mark, thank you so much for for taking the time to speak with us. And please stay safe there. (laughs) Thank you very much. On Tuesday afternoon, after Mark and I spoke, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau banned Canadians from all financial dealings with the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. And he unveiled a raft of sanctions on Russian politicians and state-backed banks. He also announced that Canada would send more troops to Europe. This came after an earlier announcement by U.S. President Joe Biden, who also outlined sanctions against Russia and said that NATO would be strengthening its presence in Eastern Europe. Okay, that's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.